This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Welcome to the podcast where you get sacked for impartiality. This is Tennis Unfiltered. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. I'm James Gray. I'm back. I'm from iNewspaper and iNews.co.uk. I've got, as always, Calvin Betton, our resident tennis coach and tennis writer, George Belshaw, here with me. Calvin, another week in Yorkshire. You got any uh, big trips planned? Uh, Yes, I am going to France with Luke Johnson on Saturday. Very good. Where about which which esteemed venue are you visiting? It's a place called San Bruic, um, and... It looks to be in the middle of nowhere, as most of the tournaments in France are. Um, they seem to love putting these huge challenges on uh, in pretty small towns that are not near any big city. Um, but they still they still get big crowds in, right? Yeah, yeah, because there's the locals. The locals love tennis in France. But um, mm. I think this one is. I think we fly to Nantes, and then it's a four-hour train. So uh, ah. to be fair, French trains are a pleasure. I, I don't want to turn this into the unfiltered train podcast but um i'm a bit of a train nerd and french trains are wildly better than anything that they have they are but aren't they really slow as well well some of the um sncf are quite slow but you know they're they're either really slow or really fast because they're either on like tgv or tear which is not bad or like yeah the domestic sncf they just stop everywhere because right yeah yeah George, have you got any... Uh, actually, George, I know you've got some exotic trips planned because I've already heard the destination for your work trips. <laughs> yeah, I've got a... I, I, I'm going to have to send my apologies for next week because I'm doing a bit of a trip to Yorkshire in the Midlands, um, which is going to render me out of action. Um, and I did quite an exciting trip today to the office, James, uh, which was... <laughs> felt like I'd gone to a different land because the wind was absolutely mental this morning. I don't know if anyone else yeah. went out and braved it, but it, it felt like I was cycling uphill the whole way and it was actually pretty much downhill. It was really, really quite tough. So yeah, good times. I mean, and my uh... mic is falling over, so sorry if you see me just sort of flailing around. I know no one can hear us, but 
Sorry, say George, yes, has, George has spent the, like 20 you. minutes before the podcast claiming that he can't go onto his laptop as well. So overall, it's been quite a challenging uh, technical start to the pod for George. But anyway, we'll crack on. We've got loads to talk about. Of course, we're in the middle of Indian Wells. I'm sat on my sofa with Felix Auger-Aliassime up against uh, Sharon Dolo in front of me. Um, Emma Adekanu is playing later tonight. Murray Draper is tonight. So probably by the time you hear this, all of that will have taken place. But we'll do our best to... Uh, to talk a bit about uh, what's going on this week in America. We'll talk Radicanu, we'll talk Medvedev, um, a remarkable scoreline between Kvitova and Yelena Ostapenko. Uh, I saw someone note that it was the same night as the Oscars, and if someone could write the ending correctly, then it would certainly be uh, an early shout for an award next, next year. Hard to disagree with that one. We'll also talk about Ukraine, because we've got a couple of listener questions about that. Uh, we'll also talk, uh, answer your questions from Matthew, from Elena Sori, Dr. Tim Mason, Chris Thornton, Chris Gunner have all sent in questions, so we'll try and get to them. But I suppose we should start because there's an award to be won. Uh, we have, I'm really excited uh. to say, been nominated for Best Tennis Award at the Sports Podcast Awards. Now, I should point out that there are more pod, more categories at the Sports Podcast Awards than I've ever seen at any awards ceremony. Uh, <laughs> and the, the shortlist for Best Tennis Podcast is quite long. But I'm very excited to say that we've been nominated. And, um, well, thank you to Sports Podcast for putting us up for it. There is a public vote, which is, I'm told, is not open yet. Um, it'll be open for about a month. And don't worry, you will hear about it. We will be probably be plugging that pretty relentlessly on the podcast so do keep your eye out on social media at unfiltered tennis or tennis unfiltered pod on instagram uh, or if you're on the mailing list if you're on the email mailing list i'm sure i'll uh, drop you an email if you want to get on that mailing list by the way just email us tennis unfiltered at gmail.com and say i want to be on the mailing list and um i will add you and make sure you waive all your gdpr rights at that point as well so i can send that i'm joking i send like one email a month it's really not that bad um, also, please do make sure, if you can, or if you have the chance, to leave us a five-star review wherever you get your pod. Um, I think we've just had one new one this week, and I might have read this out last week, but I don't care. It's from Tennis Pratt in Ireland, who says, five-star podcast, great podcast, love the honesty. Um, we do nothing if we're not honest. As I mentioned in the intro, we are not bound by the BBC rules of impartiality. We do our best to be fair, but we are not impartial, and we make no apology. Let's start with Emma Raducanu, shall we? Because she is probably playing her best tennis since she won that US Open title 18 months ago. Uh, she is back winning matches. She has defended, crucially, her points in Indian Wales, which means she won't necessarily fall much further than 77 in the world for now, which is pretty crucial. She's through to the third round. She beat uh, the highest-ranked player she has beaten since that US Open semi-final against Maria Sakkari by beating world number 21 Magda Linetti, uh, who obviously reached the Australian Open semi-final, uh, surprisingly, earlier this year, and who is coached by a Brit and a former hitting partner of Martina Hingis, but that's a story for another day. Uh, she faces Beatrice Haddad-Meyer in a match that you will already have seen, or at least know the result of by the time you hear me say this, so we won't dwell on that too much. Uh, all of that is quite impressive in the context, not just of her poor form, but also uh, of a flare-up of a wrist injury that has been troubling her for quite some months now um, that actually restricts her practice quite significantly. She's also still got the dregs of some tonsillitis kicking around uh, and still isn't necessarily feeling 100%. 
Uh, but George, let's start with the tennis. I mean, straight sets wins over Danka Kovinic, who obviously she knows pretty well, and Magda Linetti, who's who's had a really good purple patch. It's, you know, this is this is worth talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I thought she played pretty well in um, parts against Lynette. Um, there, I don't think it was Lynette at her best, to be fair. It was quite a scrappy, particularly the end of the first set, was quite a scrappy affair with quite a lot of errors. Um, but I, I think what I'd say about Emma is that there was a bit more of a... It felt like a bit more confidence and back to her old self. You know, there's been a little bit of... So you kind of watch her play, you're thinking, what's she trying to do? What's, you know, she's just trying to keep the ball in, not really do much with it. Whereas there felt a little bit more uh, oomph and pizzazz, if you like, going for a shots a little bit more. Um, so, yeah, I think that was pretty impressive. She was feeling the wrists a little bit, um, most noticeably when she lost points rather than won them, I have to say, but that's quite often the way. Um, but, yeah, I, I think this has been a really, really important little week for her to be honest um regardless you know, i'm conscious she's about to step on court with beatrice had admire and you know that i don't want to say anything but you know that feels like potentially a winnable match but had admires had quite good form outside the slams over the last 18 months or so so you know not no guarantee but um yeah i think we can suddenly start feeling slightly more positive and I hope she can just keep backing up week on week, which has not happened really. Calvin, I've seen people say that it's even more impressive for Radicani to be doing this because Indian Wells is not a place where, conditions-wise, she should be particularly strong. Um, she's had her success on grass and on relatively quick hard court. I think I'm right in saying they resurface the courts at Indian Wells every year. They're quite gritty. They're quite bouncy. It's quite hot. So, in theory, this isn't this isn't ideal for Radicani's game, is it? Um, well, I mean, first of all, they relay the courts at pretty much every hard court tournament in the world. So right. that, that's no different from anywhere else. I wish they wouldn't, uh, <laughs> but but they seem to do that, which I never really get why, because a year, two years of play on a hard court does not make the court worse. Um, they just Tennis tournaments just seem to really love spending money on relaying courts. Um, but uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it does suit her or it doesn't suit her, to be fair. You know, she's just... I mean, she's done well at Wimbledon, but Wimbledon isn't fast. Um, Wimbledon, I would say, is medium, probably medium slow, medium for a grass court, but medium slow overall. Um, and US Open is, again, I'd say it's medium quick-ish. I don't think it's as quick as it was. Uh, so I wouldn't say it suits her or it doesn't suit her, the, 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 the surface, really. Fair enough. Um, nevertheless, good to go and beat a couple of decently ranked players I mean I, I do feel like I don't want to get carried away by Emma Raducanu winning two matches in a row but you know two matches at what we might call the fifth slam and I feel like our bar has been lowered in terms of what represents success for her at the moment you'll never catch me calling it the fifth slam James that's sure. <laughs> yeah indeed um, I suppose we should talk about what's gone on off the court as well, because inevitably there, it's never a quiet week in the media when Emma Raducanu is playing. Um, and I'm, I don't mean that the media has jumped this up in any particular way, but she was asked about playing in the Billie Jean King Cup. Uh, Britain have got a tie against France in Coventry, uh, which I think is a month tomorrow uh, on April the 14th and April the 15th. 
Uh, and she said she didn't know if she'd be playing. She said, I don't even know when it is, to be honest. I haven't thought about it. I've been so in my zone, I'll decide later. Um, I think Stu Fraser tweeted that quote. Uh, and then uh, Anne Kjothavong responded with a, a raised eyebrow emoji. And then a tweet a few minutes later saying, my communication skills are generally, in case anyone was wondering, pretty good. Uh, Calvin, Anne Kjothavong's not someone to pick a fight with generally, is she? <laughs> Uh, no, uh, definitely not. Uh, and she'll speak her mind, and I'm sure they've they've had words. I've, I've got to admit, I've, I find it a bit strange from the Radicanu camp. This, there's no way that she doesn't know what it is. I mean, she might not know whether she's playing in it, and she might have, you know, she might have. I'm sure it's penciled in the diary. She might know if she's definitely not playing in it, or she might she might have already decided that she's not playing in it. In which case, I don't know why you wouldn't say she's not playing in it. She might, she must not know that she's definitely playing in it, or she would have said. But there's no way that only a month out that it's not penciled in a schedule. These players, their their schedules are set out. I mean, f probably at her level, they're set out for the whole year. I'd say, mm. and you might add something in later. And I would say that probably, with the exception of the four slams and maybe one or two other tournaments, that Billie Jean King Cup is probably the the next one that you put in there. So I don't, I really don't understand the weirdness of saying she doesn't know where it when it was. Um, she might not know the exact dates, but she'll know the week. Um, and it I... will have... There's no way... Listen, right, there's no way it hasn't been discussed with her team whether she's playing Billie Jean King Cup. There's zero chance that's the case. Uh, and I would actually be... Slight, and I, kind of knowing the little of Emma Raducanu that we do, because I'm always, I'm always sceptical to say, oh, from what we know of her, because, you know, we don't know her really. Um, but she doesn't seem like the type of person who wants to be completely unengaged from her own career. You know, she is very bright. Yeah. She she does seem very engaged with her own career. The, the one kind of flip side of that, I would say, is she's talked this week, I think, about how she's deleted Instagram and WhatsApp from her phone, how she's trying to live under a rock. Um, so I do wonder whether there, there has maybe been a little bit of a conscious switch where she said, okay, maybe actually I can't be super engaged with everything that I do in my career, and I really need to lock in on the tennis alone. Now, I think most, like if you talk to Dan Evans about this kind of stuff, he's very keen that players should like really take responsibility for their own careers. And Calvin, I don't know if you've had situations where players have maybe left too much up to you and you feel they're not taking responsibility for things or or maybe even the other way around and, and they're taking too much responsibility it's been distraction almost um i think again it's different players react in different ways some players like to some players like to even break it goes as far as they don't enter the tournaments themselves they like their coaches to enter the tournaments for them uh, mm. other players that they want to fully take on board and they'll just tell I've had players who, who've wanted me to do the entering and that kind of thing, I've other players who just tell me when they're playing and I don't luckily, I mean the, the entering process is complicated at best um, and luckily both players who I coach at the minute like to do it themselves um, but um, yeah, I mean it's it, it's it's how it depends on the player I think in those circumstances but what players will all do is they know their schedule or or they might not know it. They might not know, right, this week I'm playing this, this and this because you can't do that because you don't know whether you'll get in a lot of things. Hmm. But there's, I just find it impossible to believe that she doesn't even know when it is. And it felt like when I saw the quote, it felt like she was trying to just really labour the point that she's this, she's sort of um, taken herself out of the loop on everything. And it was almost like, yeah, we, we get it, Emma. You don't have to try and say that you don't know when tournaments are as well. You've got rid yeah. of social media. You got rid of... You know, I thought it was a bit try hard on that. 
I'm not I'm not saying this is this is the case, but I mean in terms of where Billie Jean King Cup is an importance to players at the minute, I mean Conta sat it out a lot the last few years of her career. Um you know, from Radicanu's perspective, there's no ranking points. This is a qualifier against France, one you'd say probably quite unlikely to win. Um, you know, it, it may just be the case she just really doesn't fancy it at the minute and doesn't think it's worth, particularly with the wrist injury, she wants to prioritise other things. And, you know, that that's a fair decision. But yeah, as Calvin says, it's all just a bit of a weird way of framing it. I mean, she could have easily just come out and said, oh, you know, I was barely sure I was able to play this tournament. I want to see how my wrist reacts. I don't want to commit to anything just yet. Um, hoping to be involved, even if, if if behind the scenes she's thinking, yeah, actually not that keen for this at the moment. Yeah, and, and I think it's a slightly... If she is playing games, and I'm not suggesting necessarily that she is, but I think it's a slightly naive game to play because when you look at who the people who really love Emma Raducanu are... It's lots of young international people, but also in the UK, it's older people. It's people who really care about players representing their country. Um, you know, it's it's the what are they called the bats. Is that them? The the, <laughs> the British Asso- the British Association of Tennis Supporters. The ultras, like- as I like to call them. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard some stories about nights out with the bats that I definitely can't repeat, but um, sound like sound like a fun group I, I, of people. I bet you can. Judging <laughs> <laughs> you by some of their chants, I bet it, it's it's not hardcore, is it? Eh, not in the way you'd expect. <laughs> um, anyway, moving on swiftly. So I just think it, it's you know a dangerous game to play if it's game. Look, if she if she really is completely disengaged with it, then fine. Uh, you know, and if she feels that's a point that she wants to make, and and let's face it, the main point that Emma Raducanu has had, like. Um, sort of fired at her by you know people on Facebook you go on any of these Facebook groups or on Twitter any replies it's like she doesn't focus on tennis enough she's doing too many modeling shoots so I think if she wants to labor the point that she's really focused on tennis fine I'll say what I will say is that I again I always feel like I'm criticizing Emma and it's just not the case but if if I I think that's just nonsense that she's she she needs to focus on tennis more and she's doing yeah, too many shoots like it's it's absolute waffle like, I think I don't know what these people think they think she's doing like two week modeling shoots like somewhere <laughs> it's like it's like an afternoon after training she lives the in ir- London, the, ir- not... the irony is I'm currently seeing her taking a lot of photos but she is doing <laughs> selfies with fans so I think that's yeah actually... yeah um but um what um I forget where I was going and and also Sorry. I mean it would be nice if she uh, if she played Billie Jean King Cooks, it'd give Britain a good chance to win him. But I'm also not massively patriotic myself. I, I couldn't care less if she plays or not, to be honest. It, it's like, I think she has to do, she absolutely has to do what is best for her year. And if she thinks that will compromise her injury or uh, if she if she has got a, a fragile wrist or something, she thinks that will compromise it, then don't play it. But the only thing I don't get is why, I just don't get why you wouldn't be upfront about it because she would know more than what she was letting on. I have to say that the thing I'm most relieved about having uh, seen the quotes, James, is that her Instagram account does actually still exist. I was a bit worried I was going to be losing to Calvin <laughs> in this long-term <laughs> chase of Rihanna bets. Um, or How's that standing at the minute, John? How's that standing at the minute, John? Well, we're up at 2.5 million, and when she wins the next time, <laughs> Calvin, don't worry about it. Right, so that's... <laughs> that's so that's The slow burn it. Is that 0.1 million less than what she was when you put the bet on then? No, I no, think no. it was. No. 2.6 at the highest. 
possibly but i'm sure she's not far <laughs> off that but um but anyway the point is you know she's clearly deleted it off her own phone but it is still live and kicking so if you don't already follow emma raducanu and you, you can find <laughs> nine million people who might want to please get involved i, I still find it staggering george that you made a statement that emma raducanu would be bigger than rihanna like, well i said she could get to 13 million and I, 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 st I still believe it. There's 10 years to go, Calvin. 10 years to go. It's ha hair and tortoise stuff, this. Don't you, don't you get the rest on your laurels? Well, sure. I've never seen you play the long game quite as much as this. <laughs> it's quite remarkable. It really is. Right. I mean, I can't quite believe that that argument is quite so long running. It's it's quite impressive, actually, from the two of you. But maybe I shouldn't be surprised. Um, let's move on, shall we? Because Daniil Medvedev really made me laugh. Uh, he lost his head, to use George's favourite phrase, uh, at the court speed, to use Calvin's favourite phrase. Uh, he said, I'm going to, during his match against Ilya Ivashka, who he did beat, but in three sets, he said, I'm going to go to the toilet and be as slow as this, uh, as this court is. I'm going to take 25 minutes. This is not hard courts. Um, I mean, I, I'm not a tennis expert, but surely Daniil Medvedev wants a court to be slow. Like, he, he like, it's a bit of a grind, doesn't that kind of suit him? Anyone? Um, not necessarily. You find that type of player that they sometimes do, but sometimes they don't because they need a bit more from the court as well. Um, because the, the the players who play well on slow courts are either the guys who just don't hit any winners and they can just run, 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 or often the guys who do well are the guys who can hit through the slow courts. Hmm. And that's why Nadal being so dominant on slow courts, he can do both. Um, right. And and that's that's where the problems come if it's really slow. Whereas Medvedev, it's not like he struggles on a quick court because he's done pretty well at um, US Open, which is quicker than this. Well, he's won, he's won one, not done pretty well mm. at it. Uh, but he also has a pretty decent serve, and you know you need a bit more from your serve as well. He needs a bit he needs a bit of speed on the court for his serve. So it's not necessarily a case that he would, because he makes a lot of balls, he wants slow courts, because it kind of makes him too one-dimensional, that. There was another slight slant to the quote I saw, James. I think it's a bit of a, a classic Medvedev rant, but one of them was, I'm going to pee as slow as the court. The court <laughs> is so slow, so I go slow. <laughs> Which I thought was just great. The idea of him just like trying to trickle it out as slow as possible. Um, I kind of assumed, without wanting to get too graphic, that if he was going to go to the toilet and take a long time, he'd be sitting on it. You know, like like <laughs> that. I you know I I would find it hard to have a slow pee. Whereas yeah, I can take I can you know I can get through at least a fifteen minute YouTube video on the load. Another technical question for Calvin. Uh, he's kept saying this is meant to be hard courts. This is not hard courts. What is the definition of a hard court, and why is this not a hard court? Definitely, definitely is a hard court. It's a slow one. But it's, like, there's no question that it's hard court. It's made of acrylic, uh, concrete, and it's got sand in it. It's a hard court. There's no question. I also don't know what he thought the umpire was going to do. Like was, was, it to, was it said to the umpire to order like digging up of the court mid match? Like, the umpire go, yeah, that's a fair point. Bring the diggers on. Like, just, just, it was bizarre because he was like actually like directing it at the umpire, and like I, I really don't know what what you thought the outcome of that argument must have been. He's got to be right up there in terms of the most creative rants, doesn't he? I mean, I can't remember many players who come up with such weird turns of phrases over the years. I don't know if anyone wants yeah. to put anyone else forward in that. Uh, weirdest ranters. I mean, yeah, because 
you're right. Like most of them, it's just like they find one thing to shout about, and they just keep going at it. Like I, when I was in Australia, I watched Benoit Pair against Michael Moe, the American who actually had quite a good run in qualifying, and it was a really hot day. It was the day they stopped for heat, and he was complaining that he didn't have. He was only wearing one wristband, and. He, he asked the umpire for another wristband and it took ages to come, which I guess, like, to, to, on the one hand, yeah, it, sh- it took, like, 20 minutes. They couldn't get hold of one. But equally, it's like, bring your own wristbands, mate. Like, that is kind of on you. And he just kept saying, wristband, 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 to the way that it just got a bit weird. Um, I'm <laughs> Seems to unlike think... Benoit Pair to be weird. <laughs> I mean, I was. It did make me laugh because I I didn't even go to watch the match. Like I was wandering back from somewhere, and I just like as you sometimes do at these tournaments, especially in qualies when there's not many people around, just walked onto a court. And I was like, oh, it's Benoit Pair. And I was like, there's not a lot of tennis going on. And he was just shouting at the umpire. And I was like, yeah, that, that you know, that checks out. Um, I credit to Michael Moe for keeping his concentration. Well, whilst we're on Benoit Pair, we should acknowledge he he won a title last week. Did he? Unbelievably, the Puerto Vallarta Open. He's having a good time. Um, I'm just looking at who he beat there. Uh, he beat Yuta <laughs> Shimizu in the final. Um, I'm not. Marchenko, convinced... probably the best known name he beat on route, I would say. But yeah. uh, I tell you what, uh, actually, I did see someone took a picture of him on Twitter playing table tennis with their mum. So, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I make of that what you will. I, maybe Benoit Pair is good for the tour. I don't know. I Maybe mean, he's, he's one of those guys, isn't he? He's, he's phenomenally talented. He's, he's very, very talented. But I always thought, and I got some stick for this at the time. I remember I was talking to a couple of the British guys in uh, at the NTC, and I got sticks. I said he's the worst player that's ever been in the top 20. And I, I still believe that um, overall. <laughs> like that is, a, that is a title. I, let us know on Twitter, at Unfilter Tennis. I'm going to tweet I don't it think you'll find a worse speak. one. Like, you know, he's, he's like, he, can't, he can barely hit a forehand. His forehand's terrible. He serves well. He's got a good drop shot. His backhand, his backhand is world class, to be fair. But you know, look at him now. He's like this is. I do think he's he's he shouldn't be at the level he's at now. But he's he's like a guy. He's like a fifty guy, isn't he? I'm just trying a Jack Sock. Yeah, but Jack Sock had a huge forehand though, like a huge mm. forehand. And... George, you got any, anyone you want to put in there? No, he doesn't. That's, that's I, the answer. I'm a bit stumped by that one. I've never given that question enough thought. I, I might have to come back to you next week on that and dig into my brain a little bit. There's, there's been <clears> some <throat> bad ones, I'm sure. Well, I'm sure. He's, I mean, you know, you, you can argue, you know, it's, it's one of those you can argue. But I think he's in the he's at the he's at the bottom table of top 20 <laughs> players of all time. I wouldn't say he's necessarily the worst, but like. If you think of a, a random spiker, like someone like Carrot Sev was like amazing for like three months and then just That's completely not a bad vanished. Shout. Like, did he make top? I thought he only made 21. Ooh, I'm sure that's, he did. That's where I think he might get caught out. I know he got to 14. Jesus. 14. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's also in trouble for other things at the moment, but that's. Uh, that's I don't think I can say any more about yeah, that. There, yeah, exactly. That there was, you know, when that happened, there were some questions to be asked, weren't there? 
Yeah, agreed. Um, I, I want to talk more about Daniel Medvedev, by the way, because what we should have mentioned, quite apart from his rant, is he's playing some phenomenal tennis. Now he, now that I've said that, he will probably go and lose to Alexander Zverev, which, which you know is a pretty good test of his his form. But he um, he's on a 16-match unbeaten run. He won the title in Rotterdam, in Doha, and then in Dubai. He gubbed Novak Djokovic 6-4, 6-4. He didn't drop a single set in Dubai. Um it's quite a turnaround, George. I mean, we, we talked about on this podcast not that long ago, is Daniil Medvedev done? And t- to be honest, I don't know whether he listened to that podcast, but it sounded like he was saying quite similar things to Gilles Savara in training. Um, Gilles did a, a really good interview with uh, tennis majors by a guy called Cedric Ruquette, who I, I don't actually know, but really interesting hearing him talk about what you know what practice was like and how he actually thought Medvedev wasn't playing that badly and you know something was just missing and and actually he just had to keep being positive in practice and and reinforcing and eventually there was a a turning point on court in Rotterdam um I'm just going to read you a bit of this interview because I think it's really interesting uh, the day before the first match in Rotterdam before training with Benjamin Bonzi I said to him what I've said on court to you over the last few days has been quite positive we won't be able to have them in a match so during this training match I won't intervene You'll have to find the resources yourself, so I'm not talking to you. But so as to not leave you with nothing, I wrote a note on the sheet of paper you could use if you need it. I wrote down the different things I feel and perceive at the moment that could possibly help you. Um, he put it in his bag. He used it during training, and it was the only set he didn't win all week. <laughs> then we have an exchange, and the only thing I remember is, it doesn't work. It's a foregone conclusion. Uh, the first match against Alejandro Davidic Fakina, there are many things that happened during and after I can't give details about. They're related to intimacy of a team's life. But after that... And this is where Daniel is remarkable and often incredible. When the lights up, it's gone. When the thing lights up, it's gone. Um, George, what's changed about Daniel Medvedev? Do you think? Yeah, I, I found this a really interesting interview as well because it actually sounded a little bit like the the conversation me and Calvin have been having about Medvedev for the last few months, where I've slightly been backing him, saying it's not as bad as I think it is, and Calvin's be like, well. I think he might be done. He might be big trouble. And, you know, there's still a long time to go in that debate. You know, he's only have, you know, while it's been three very good weeks, you've still got to translate into the slams, etc., which is where we'll ultimately judge Medvedev. Um, but it, it, it really gives an insight into just how much sits inside the mind of a player. And he, you know, he spoke really honestly, didn't he, about kind of how Medvedev was kind of completely lacking that belief in himself. And, you know, really, he's done incredibly well just to find something within him. And, you know, as as you said, James, it can turn on a single moment or a single trading session or a single match or a single point even. Um, that, that's why we love sport, isn't it? You know, there's so much more going on than just hitting forehands and backhands. You know, you'd, you'd always have the same people winning all the time if it was just down to that. But it, it, between the ears is an impossible thing to kind of really regulate for. Um, and Medvedev's... A, one of the most interesting mentally guys out there because he goes on these incredible streaks. We know he's incredibly mentally tough half the time. And yet there are other periods where he's just, he feels vulnerable and you can sense the vulnerability and you, you just see him, I don't know, just kind of fade away. And so he's a really complex, interesting character, not, not dissimilar to Djokovic in that perspective, in the sense that you, you'd back Djokovic to be there every single moment all the time, but even he can go complete walkies and just lose his head. Um, so yeah, it, I found it really fascinating, and I, I hope he continues on this trajectory because a, a Daniel Medvedev playing at the top of his game 
is only good news for tennis. He's such a good character and such a good kind of foil for people like Alcaraz who are coming through. He'll, you know, that's a potentially really, really good rivalry that we could have. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. I mean, and I, I think as well, like when I said, I'd, I think he may be done. I'd, I, you know, I've readdressed that a little bit. Um, I think probably a bit premature there, but I also think there's still questions to be asked. I mean, I thought, I thought he'd end up winning maybe three or four slams. I, I think now he might win another one, but I, I don't know if he wins more than that. Because I think, I mean, mainly I think the only one he can win is the U.S. Open. Um, but, um, and I also do question at the biggest matches at the end of slams whether he's got the, whether his mental stability is enough. Because you look at actually his, his slam finals and he he was, he lost the one to Nadal where he was behind, but came back and then Nadal won the fifth. Um, he then won the one against Djokovic. He's been in three finals. Am I right with that? Two years Open uh, and Aussie final. Yeah. yeah. Who did he yeah. lose his US Open final to? Nadal. Nadal. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, right. And then... Who and is then his obvi- tonight, to be fair, Nadal? He's, he's he? obviously lost to Nadal from two sets to love up, uh, where he was absolutely destroying Nadal in yeah. that match. <laughs> Absolutely yeah. caning him. The one that yeah. he won against Djokovic was interesting because Djokovic was all over the shop. Like yeah. he was he was playing terrible. But also in that match, I remembered it and I was thinking about this just last night actually. In that match, I think I'm not so certain I'm exactly right on the score here, but Medvedev went two breaks up in the third set. He was two sets to yeah. love up. He went two then he lost his serve. Did, and then yeah. Djokovic I mean... held. And I'm pretty sure he then went love thirty on his own serve when he was serving for it. And I think he hit four huge first serves or three huge first serves in a row. And I remember thinking at the time, if he doesn't find those first serves, I'm not sure he actually closes that match out because he was really wobbling. He he was helped by Novak sobbing on the bench. Yeah, exactly. Which which, which changeover was that? Was that when he was two breaks down or when he he was two breaks down? It was when he was two breaks down. And then. And that really, that must have really messed with Medvedev. That must have really screwed with him. But you also have this problem with him that aside from... This is the problem with that type of player, though, that Medvedev is. When you're closing matches out, and it's not necessarily always... We always say they bottled it and they choked it. And there's other players that that they label this, and I don't think it is that they bottle and choke it. With with that player, if your main sort of... The main asset to your game is that you make a lot of balls. When it gets to the real crunch moments at the ends of matches where your opponent can't afford to lose another, another game, they start making more balls. So then it's you then get a situation where the, they're really focused. They've set out, I'm not missing any here. So they're more consistent than they have been in the rest of the match. And players like Medvedev, they can't hit winners either. So you've then got a situation where they start panicking and they think, shit, they're making more balls now. What am I going to do? Whereas if you get players who like the best closers of matches, Pete Sampras, um, Andy Roddick was an excellent closer of a match because they could just, they're big serve, big forehand. They can cl- they can literally close matches out, whereas Medvedev and, and guys who make balls they're still relying on on the other player missing at crunch moments. Yes, uh, it's, sorry, that was such a compelling point. I was just enjoying the uh, enjoying the ambiance of it. George, do you have anything more you want to add on on Daniil Medvedev think, or or from Gilles Savara? Yeah, I think uh, I think Calvin's totally fair to kind of point these things um that have gone wrong at the same time i mean the one in australia is is really hard to kind of mitigate for there's just no way you should have lost that match i, I can understand the first one um you know first slam final 
clawed it back to five sets. Felt like quite an admirable thing, but he, you know, he should. He's too good to be losing to Nadal on hard courts, really. Um, in my opinion, I, I am a little bit reticent to kind of use three matches against Nadal and Djokovic as the benchmark of whether he'll win slams. You know, he should get a lot of chances to win slams without facing those guys, and you know, the, the levels they've hit are, are going to be tough to match for anyone, even even Alcaraz. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I've never had Medvedev down for more than about three or four slams like Calvin. I still think he, he can hit the three, at least. Um, and the way he's playing at the minute, you know, why not? He can win a few more. He's been playing some superb stuff, but the test is going to be how he matches up with Alcaraz, which isn't a match we've really had the chance to see. Um, but I, I think he fancies himself against Djokovic at the minute. I really do. I think that's... That's a bit of a 50-50 match for me at the minute. Really, really tight. Uh, yes, quite. Um, Calvin's just pointed something out to me on WhatsApp, which is secret texting during the podcast. I don't know if that's allowed. I don't know if I should break the fourth <laughs> wall and point it out either. But it's actually a good thought. And with Daniil Medvedev, talking about Daniil Medvedev, one of the biggest servers around at the moment. But um, Calvin, you got into a bit of a, I, I'm not going to say a fight on Twitter, but a discussion on Twitter. I'd be unlike about... you. <laughs> well, no, the person uh, I, I was just... fighting with has blocked me, so like, yeah, I didn't get into a fight with him. Uh, a discussion about uh, who the greatest server of all time is. Now, can you remember who it is who started this whole conversation? Yeah, Patrick Miller Tugwell. Ah, I see. It wasn't his tweet. Somebody tweeted what he'd said, what Muratoglu had said was the five best servers of all time. Uh, and what did he say? He said it was... I can't remember the order. He said it was Kyrgios was one. He said Kyrgios was the best server of all time. Uh, Isner was in there. Karlovic was in there. Um, I'm trying to think who else. There were a couple of real bad ones. Here you go. I've got it. Number one, Kyrgios. Number two, Isner. Number three, Karlovic. Number... F f sorry. Number three, Roddick. Number four, Karlovic. Number five, Sampras. Uh, Calvin, what's your what's your top five? Um, well, for me, it's and, and I feel quite strongly about this, and I always have um, that it, it's Pete Sampras at the top by an absolute mile, um, and then after that, there's debates to be had. The interesting debate, and I had this with with a couple of coaches from guys who are in the top fifty of the world last week, um, and we were discussing it by by WhatsApp and voice notes and that kind of thing, and. We didn't really reach a conclusion, but I stood firm on my Sampras one, and I think I got a bit of backing by the end of it, was um, um, the difference between separating who has the best serve and who is the best server of all time. And and the, the way I'd separate that is that if you just want the best service action, then there's an argument that any... You can make a solid argument to any of them, because if any of these guys who are in, say, the top 10 of all time, if they serve well, they're serving... 30 aces a match of, of you know and and they're gonna they're gonna hold serve there's the difference with pete sampras is the guys won 14 slams if you want somebody to come and serve under pressure huge match say say it's six five up in the fifth of a, of a u.s open final who would you rather have serving for that pete sampras or john isner pete sampras or nick kyrgios who's been in one second week of a slam in the last seven years that or the guy who has won 14 of them. And anybody who watched Pete Sampras in his prime, and I also think this is an interesting point, that Pete Sampras in his prime was serving at 100, I think his average first serve speed was 123 miles an hour. Now that hasn't really changed in the 25 years since since Pistol Pete was at his prime. 
which is interesting. So you can't argue that it's in context and that kind of thing. Because his actual service, I think if you put his serve in the game now, it would still be the best serve in the men's game in terms of accurate, the accuracy that he had under pressure. And there was a quote from him that I think Mark Hilton sent to me, that a quote to him that he said he would, it was, I forget the exact quote, but he would back himself every day of the week to hold serve. And I'm not sure you can say that about the others. Can you say that, does John Isner, does he really back himself every day of the week to hold serve? This is a guy who, I think somebody told me last week as well, that with Isner, if the serve comes back in court, he wins less than 50% of the points on his own serve. <laughs> would, yeah, you, I... would you back Nick Kyrgios, to serve, the, one of the most mentally fragile people that we've ever seen <laughs> on a tennis court? Would you back him to hold serve all day long? Uh, it's it's for me it's Sampras. I would then say in terms of ser- best serve ever, it's a bigger debate. But again, and also what we always think of this is first serve. P. Sampras, no question, had the best second serve of all time. That that's not even up for debate. It was basically his first serve again. Yeah, <clears throat> I mean when I yeah I agree with Calvin's framing of it in terms of like the best serve action. I kind of think about. You know, if you look at like Karlovic, I mean, the bloke was just a serve. He had absolutely nothing else and he's made like a kind of top 30 career out of himself. So in terms of that shot, like how many other players could just serve and do nothing afterwards and get that high in the world? I don't know. He he feels quite high to me um, for that, the single shot. But yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right, Kevin. There's, there's a lot going on with the servers as a whole and, you know, the context. And yeah, the second serve is always horribly left out. I'm far more interested in who's got a good second serve yeah. than the first one most tennis players well, not most a good portion of tennis players first serves if they go in they're likely to win the point really a lot of the time like you know that's, yeah. they serve at pretty good speeds um but how many of them are winning their second serve comfortably not not that many um the isn't a second serve is actually pretty good to be fair it's yeah, not yeah. that far yeah. off the first serve speed but as you say that kind of mentality is uh yeah a tougher one to follow up and also, I think the thing with P- Pistol Pete as well was that his, he was so athletic. And it used to be said that he basically he would have been a small one, so he'd have been a point guard, but he basically had the build of, a, of an NBA player. And if you watch the speed in which he can get to the net, it, it was phenomenal. So it, it's not... And he was a decent volley. He wasn't the best volley around, but he was a decent volleyer. So it's not like John is in the way you're going, well, if I get this ball back in court, I'm then 50-50. You had to do a whole lot more than Sam Pro- uh, a whole lot more than that against Sampras. It, it, you know that that was that was not up for debate. The interesting thing, what I found during this debate, when I found those the the average speed of Sampras was that how the serve, the strictly the serve, not not what happens after the serve, but strictly the serve in the men's game hasn't really moved in a quarter of a century now. Sampras, like I said, was serving at one two five, uh, one one two three on average. But interesting, like if you look at that was say I think nineteen ninety five. Um, when he was there, maybe 96. But if you look at what the serve was like, even seven or eight years before that, it's a world away. Like it's not, you, you know, the, the, from the serve from say 1985 to 1995 moved massively. And the serve from 95 to 2023 hasn't really moved at all. And now you can put some of that down to technology, but then you look at Sampras was basically playing with, the Wilson Pro staff, which was around for a good few years before he came into his prime, 
So it wasn't like he got a, a racket that the other guys weren't ser were serving with. And it's also not a particularly powerful racket at all, that. And it's the same racket that Roger Federer played with for the majority of his career. I tell you, um, one of the most interesting players I've heard speak about this exact thing before is actually Milos Raonic, who actually can be quite... Um, he, well, he's a very interesting person, actually. quite interesting yeah, yeah. in his own way, like very interesting kind of methodical guy. And he... We spoke about this a long time ago. This was about six or seven years ago. And he was saying that serves will never get faster than they are now. They've nailed the technology yeah. and the technique to the point that there's actually no further upshot. And, you know, you get the odd one. If you look at the world's fastest serves or whatever, there's a lot of, you know, I think it's Sam Groth who's technically maybe hit one at 164 that's a little bit disputed. Most of them are topping out max kind of 150 at best. Uh, and really in the 140s and yeah it's really it's not the it's the averages at all. it's the averages you want to look at and, and riley apelka averages has the fastest average first serve and it's 126 miles an hour which yeah. as calvin says it's not moved very far and i mean what 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 i think one of the players who i was talking to last week or the coaches of one of the players had said and he'd been talking to his player about it was that he thought that isner was the best serve ever because he said if you gave Isner Sampras a serve, he would be a worse player. And if you gave Sampras Isner serve, he'd be pretty pumped about it. Now, there's value in that, but that doesn't make a difference to me to who the best server is. Hmm. And and by I mean that, to be the best server, it has to mean who you would back to hold serve at key moments. And that's okay. why I think it's just ludicrous that Muratoglu has put Nick Kyrgios there. Can I put a couple of, on, on that note then, I'm going to put a couple of names in there, which a lot of other people have also said, it's not a particularly original thought. Um, Goran Ivanisevic, uh, some people saying Roger Federer, I mean I always think Roger Federer is an incredible good, incredibly good clutch server, especially latterly in his career. Would people take issue with them, George? Last Wimbledon finally played in, I'll disagree I, with that. I've got I've got quite a good list here, James, that I I think yeah, quite interesting because I, I think Karlovic has the best serve for the record um, in terms of the actual serve. Mm. And indeed, Ivo Karlovic has the highest percentage of service games won on all surfaces from all countries. So he's won 92% of his serves. <laughs> so I can, I can give you the top 10, if you like, and see if there's any interesting names in here. I think you won't be too surprised by some of them, but... So one Karlovic, 92. Two, John Isner, 91.82. Three, Ryanich, 91.16. Four, Roddick, 90%. Five, Roger Federer, 88.8%. Six, Pete Sampras, 88.74%. Seven, Nick Kyrgios, 88.68%. Eight, Wayne Arthurs, 88.24. Nine, Matteo Berrettini. 87.60 and 10 Richard Krychek at 87.27 nice. so think, quite interesting stats I think what I'd counter that with again and that those those stats were brought up to me last week by somebody and I'm, I'm a bit resistant to actually take them because I do think it's the same as in football when you get people like fans of I saw somebody raise it earlier that Jurgen Klopp was a better manager than Alex Ferguson because he's had more points he, he's had three seasons where he's got more than more than 87 points and for me it's like you get as many points as you need to win the league 
like how many points is largely irrelevant. You do what's required. And mm. it's the same in, in tennis, I think, in terms of like you do you do what's required to win the games and to win the points. And and also I will counter it that Pete Sampras, this is where I would separate him from Ivo Karlovic and Matteo Berrettini and that kind of thing. Pete Sampras, he, he won 14 finals. I don't know how many others he was in the final of. He was competing at the latter end, at the, the toughest stage that you have to do it. You can put you can put Federer in that category as well. Ivo Karlovic is doing this kind of thing. He could go through matches here. For example, he could be in a, in, a, in the first round of a slam and lose two lose three tie break sets and and never get never face a break point. Whereas Sampras is having to do it against Andre Agassi, who might be the best returner of all time. Federer is having to do it against Novak Djokovic over five sets at the back end under pressure, serious pressure. And that's why I, th- I think you've got to take those stats with a kind of a pinch of salt. I mean, the, you know, not to not to claim Federer should be top of this list, although he obviously was a, an excellent server. The numbers around these percentages are quite interesting as well in the sense that Federer's fifth, fifth there, having played 16,758... One, sorry. Won 16,758 service games of 18,872. That's a, it's a pretty meaty sum compared to... That's basically twice as many Mac games he's played uh, on serve compared to other people on that list. So, you know, in terms of doing it for a long time over his career, Federer is uh, pretty impressive on that front. Kyrgios George, only George, played 3,500. George, what do you reckon your... Uh, service percentages games won on serve uh, are we talking singles or doubles singles obviously singles absurd uh, probably not as good as it should be to be honest <laughs> like, <laughs> similarly to Ka- as Calvin I've, I've got the uh, the head of Kyrgios and the mobility of Karlovic so probably only around <laughs> 60% Right, okay. No, no, it's probably a bit higher than that. I'd probably, like, I probably would win. I'd like to think I win eight of ten service games. But it depends, as Calvin says, it depends who you're playing. You know, if I play someone who's really bloody good at tennis, I'm going to lose 100 percent of my service games. If I play someone who's <laughs> really bad at tennis, I'm going to win 100 percent of them. And you know, at the level I play, James, it's quite a wide range of people. So you know, I don't even know. Say. I don't even know how to interrogate this. Well, it depends who I'm playing against, anyway. <laughs> Viewing the stats. <laughs> After the break, we're going to talk about Ukraine. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. 
Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Welcome back to Tennis Unfiltered with me, James Gray of iNews.co.uk and the iNewspaper. Got uh, George Belshaw, the tennis writer, and our resident tennis coach, Calvin Betton, who was just, we, we were going to refrain from talking about Murray versus Draper because it's going to happen in about four hours' time and it will already have happened um, where by the time you hear this podcast. But we were opining as to who we think is going to win. Calvin, you, you said Draper, but you were talking about how... <laughs> How insanely high his ceiling might be. I, I was. I, I mean, I said Draper initially. I was. I would might have changed my mind on that already. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure. I think it's a really tough one to call. I'd probably slightly say Draper, but it wouldn't surprise me one bit. I was saying. I think it's interesting where with with Jack when you see these players, and I've known Jack since he was nine, I think when I first saw him play. Um, and it's interesting when you see these players where as kids. You can see that they've got some quality, that they're, they're very, very good players and they're going somewhere. But the the things what you see as their, they're basically their strengths and how they'll develop their game, sometimes they stay with them throughout their career. Like if you saw, say, for example, if you saw Nadal and even Murray at, at, at a younger age, they were guys who competed well. They made a lot of balls. Murray always really skillful in what he could do, he could adapt, he could problem solve. That's basically the player that you've got now. And similarly with uh, with Nadal, he, he, he's a guy who, who was intense, he ran a lot, and he, um, you know, he, he hit heavy, heavy ball, or he was moonballing a lot when he was younger, and then developed this, this heavy ball. And you could see, you know, it's feasible. But then you get players like with Jack, where Jack was kind of like one of those players, like a bit like Nadal, where you thought he competes really well. He was always really focused, but he was never that tall when he was younger and and he's gonna make he makes a lot of balls and he makes himself tough to beat and he competes and it's just happened that over the last i guess over the last four or five years he's turned into this guy who just hits the ball absolutely huge and i would just never have thought that when he was 12 13 that that would be the type of player that he would turn into and another one like that actually is del potro who was always quite a smooth player I wouldn't say he didn't hit it big, but he didn't didn't hit it massively hard. But I wouldn't say he hit it softly. But it's all I always find it interesting where you see players as kids and and they you know they're going to be good, but they end up being good in a different way than what you thought they were going to be good in. And that's definitely the case with Jack. And I was saying that I don't know what his ceiling is because initially I thought you know I thought we've probably got a top twenty player here. But the more I watch him play, and if he can stay on tour, I, th- I think we're looking at maybe more than that because he hits it absolutely massive. On serve mm. and ground strokes. What, what's yeah. more, is is he competing with Alcaraz for number one, or are you saying? I, I just think top he 10? could do. I think he could do. I, re- I really think he could do. High praise. Um, he obviously beat Dan Evans in his previous uh, battle of the Brits. Uh, he he thrashed Luca. I think it's Luca Reedy, uh, the Swiss player, in the first round, and then beat Evans four and two. I mean, do you think Evo was the seeded player, Calvin? I know you know. Evo, and he, he wouldn't like any of us saying that he's been surpassed by Jack, but do you think in the British pecking order that it is now Norrie, Draper, Evans? Um, I think Jack might be better than Norrie now. You know, 
I think if if he's fit and he's playing, I I, I think it's there or thereabouts. I don't mm. know. I mean, what I will say it's it's, it's a, a terrible matchup for Evo. Like playing a left-hander, a huge left-hander, and what Jack can do. I've told the story before of a couple of Christmases ago when when Jack was practicing against Luke, who I coach, and he hit a wide serve to the ad court, and it broke a sideline, and it, it went over my shoulder. Um, <laughs> and I was stood four meters wide of the court, and it was still rising as it went over my shoulder. Now, for a one hand, for for a guy who's Evo size, I think five nine, with a one handed backhand, that is an absolute nightmare. There's no way of returning it, um, mm. and so it's just it's a tough matchup for Evo. So, I I, I wouldn't say he's necessarily. I think those three are very much in the same ballpark, but I think it won't be long before Jack takes that mantle. It's it's the fitness, really, isn't it? I mean. You, know, you say you say is he is he better than Norrie? I mean, Norrie's a hundred times fitter than Draper. Someone said to me, um, who was in very close proximity to the Draper Nadal match in Australia, said you can't be cramping in the third set. Even in Australia, it wasn't that hot a day, and you know, obviously Jack's had various injury problems. And he doesn't have that. He didn't have the preseason he wanted. He got ill twice. He so he only had two out of seven weeks, and you know. He, I think this this type of fitness, and maybe we underestimate it, George, but I feel like that sort of endurance fitness, you know, two hours, three hours on court in the heat, it takes years to develop, doesn't it? Yeah, look, Murray had all sorts of problems early in his career. Um, It's easy to forget that, having watched this bloke go through more ludicrously long matches than anyone else you'll ever see on tour. But Murray used to be, people used to say Murray was a bit soft and might not, yeah. Can't actually adapt to that sort of thing, and that, that kind of fueled Murray um, in many ways. You know, someone who you saw in his documentary, didn't you? He loves the idea of being written off, um, so he can prove them wrong. And yeah, hopefully Jack's got a a little bit of that in him. I'm not I'm not sure Jack's got the same level of attention, to be honest, as Andy did as a as a young kid. Um, you know, there's there's still you know people within tennis know him, but I think Murray you always got a bit more of a sense, maybe a few more goes at Wimbledon will bring that around. He's had, he's had some tough opening round draws there. Um, but yeah, look, it, it, he's a really exciting talent. There's been, you know, it's possibly a bit more stop-start than you imagine, but Alcaraz last year, he went from, what, 35 in the world to, to one? You know, that jump, he, he's shown that jump is possible. I'm not saying he's going to do it over the next 12 months, but you know, this is a, a real season where I'm hoping Jack can push on and get towards that top 20. And as soon as you get your ranking up and you get those easier early round draws, um, not to say it serves in the top five of all time or anything, but it is a pretty useful weapon. And as a lefty, it can cause big, big, big problems. Um, so, yeah, he, he's he's got great chances. And, you know, we're talking about the Evans backhand there. You think about other guys on the tour whose backhands maybe aren't that strong. You know, there's people like Sisyphus, Berrettini, you know, these are top 10 players who you think Jack could really get at with that serve, just being a natural big lefty server into the backhand. You know, he, he, he'll he win a lot of matches against good players or or at least keep himself in the conversation in big matches and big players just by that, that advantage, really. Mm. Um, 
Let's move on because I did promise before the break that we were going to talk about Ukraine and, and there is lots. I mean, I, I can't tell you, I think this podcast might be about four hours long just looking at how many different <laughs> things there are to talk about. Something about Indian Wells just always creates news. I think it's because the one it's the one that we never go to as a British press pack or rarely go to. Uh, but anyway, um, quite a troubling story about Lesia Serenko this week. Uh, she had made it through to the third round uh, from which she has withdrawn. She was due to play Arena Sabalenka, but she's withdrawn um, because she says, and who we doubt her, she had a panic attack. Uh, this is what she had to say, uh, speaking to the Big Tennis Ukraine website. She said, a few days ago, I had a conversation with our WTA CEO, Steve Simon, and I was absolutely shocked by what I heard. He told me that he himself does not support the war, but if the players from Russia and Belarus support it, then this is their own opinion and the opinion of other people should not upset me. At the same time, he noted that if this had happened to him and he had been in my place, he would have felt terrible. Um, Obviously, we don't have Steve Simon's side of the story here, um, which had I found out about this more than maybe half an hour before the podcast started, I would have happily contacted the WTA and I will do so after this podcast ends so maybe you will read something from me um here's a bit more from Serenko what happened during that conversation I had a few different questions asked about the quality of the balls in Monterey um a few other bits and pieces besides Steve Simon expressed his confidence to me that the Russians and Belarusians will return to the Olympics and it will happen as it is happening in tennis now he told me that this is in fact a fair play and it shows that Olympic principles are not violated that it will show that everyone is equal and everyone has the opportunity to perform in the Olympics. Um, I had questions regarding the tour's support for the Ukrainian players. Uh, this basically explains how the Australian Open organisers gave them lots of support. Um, previously, we've never got similar support from WTA, so when I asked about it again a few days ago, Steve Simon told me he will continue to monitor the situation. So to me, it was clear that it will stay the same, meaning no help as it was last year. This conversation left me completely shocked. I tried to digest all the information, but today I broke down mentally, to be honest. Ukrainian players in our chat know about this conversation. I assume a WhatsApp group, I think she's referring to. Um, Everyone felt the same. Everybody's shocked. I just don't get such things need to be explained. It's just so weird and painful. We asked for a conference call with WTA board about what we should do about it. How someone like this can be a leader. How we should understand whether our organisation protects our rights or at all or not. Um, George, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh... I mean, I think I think I probably speak for all three of us because we sort of discussed it before we came on. When I say that, the first thing we should all say is that it's pretty incomparable what anyone Ukrainian is going through right now because of the war crimes that are being committed in their country, the fear that they must all have waking up every day as to whether friends and family are going to be okay. And I think we all share, I'm, I, I speak for all three of us, I'm, I'm fairly confident when we say that it is very difficult to empathise uh, with that. You can sympathise, but I think the empathy is, is virtually impossible. Um, George, like I said, we haven't got Steve Simon's side of the story, but if we take that at face value, I mean, do you think he's just just had a bad, had a misstep there and not really thought about who he's talking to or what he's saying? Yeah, I've I've found this story quite difficult to get my head round um, for a lot of reasons. You know, I, I don't want to try and defend Steve Simon, but I've been you know thinking of possible things that maybe you know there's 
a loss in translation or something that might have gone wrong um, in the conversation. <clears throat> but yeah, I mean, whatever he's done, it's clearly been clumsy at best. And, you know, I might be being really generous to Steve Simon there. It might have been a, a remark that has been accurately reported via Serenko. Um I just find it a really strange, strange story um, for, for for him to have said that sort of thing. I mean, I've seen the WCA have put a, out a bit of a statement about it. Certainly not. They're not trying to take it head on to deny the comments. Um, admittedly, they're in a bit of a difficult position there because, you know, if they start, it becomes a bit more of a, a war of words if you start saying, your players lying and they're making it up or, you know, this isn't accurate, you know, that, that makes it a bit more confrontational. So they've sort of acknowledged um, that they support Ukrainians and they've stood by their kind of decision to let Russian athletes play, which I think we're probably all in agreement is okay at the moment. Um, I'm just, George, I'm just going to, um, in the interest of fairness, going to read out that statement because having given um, this statement quite some time. Um, the, the statement says, first and foremost, we acknowledge the emotions of uh, Lysia and all of our Ukrainian athletes have and continue to manage during this very difficult period of time. We're witnessing an ongoing horrific war that continues to bring unforeseen circumstances with far-reaching consequences that are affecting the world as well as the global WTA Tour and its members. The WTA has consistently reflected our full support for Ukraine and strongly condemned the actions that have been brought forth by the Russian government. With this, a fundamental principle of the WTA remains, which is ensuring that individual athletes may participate in professional tennis events based on merit and without any form of discrimination and not penalised due to the decisions made by leadership of their country. Yeah. I don't know. I I don't really know what to say about this story in the sense that if he's said what he said, then he's obviously incredibly insensitive and was wrong to say that, I think. Um, you know, as you say, James, it, it's very hard to em emphasise completely, but I think you can, you know, anyone with a, a sense of um, social compass, if you like, could, you know, realise you know your audience in that that setting and not that you should be saying things in other settings but you know you have to be more wary of what's what what's happening with these players and how your remarks are likely to be received in what's a really troubling and difficult time and it's creating quite an interesting dynamic on the tour at the, at the minute and I know we've spoken about this dynamic a lot of the minute uh, sorry a lot over the over the last year but it, it does feel to me that there is a bit of a a bit more of a collaboration amongst the Ukrainian players now that they are getting more on the on the page of thinking Russians shouldn't be competing. That that's the sense I'm kind of getting at the moment. Um and Svitolina's kind of said similarly in an interview with Mike Dixon in the mail this week. Um which is yeah, a bit of a problem really. Um I'm not saying they should welcome Russians with open arms, but you you'd like to think the ones who aren't supporting the war they might have it might have, as time's gone on, become a bit more amicable, if you like. But it, it, that doesn't feel to be the case to me, certainly in terms of the stuff that's coming out in the news. Yeah, you mentioned that Svitolina interview with Dicko. And um, yeah, just to, to pick out one or two bits, um, the war has brought the Ukrainian players closer and we all agreed that this is not fair for us that they, i.e. Russians and Belarusians, just carry on. Other sports, Olympic sports, are not allowing Russian athletes to compete. It's pretty much only tennis that is allowing them in, and I don't know why it is like this. 
Um, now, just to sort of counter that, the uh, International Fencing Federation voted last week to allow Russians and Belarusians to start competing. It is very relevant to note that the International Fencing Federation is largely backed by Alisher Uzmanov, who is uh, an Uzbek-Russian uh, businessman. So there is a vested interest there. But the nations who make up that International Federation voted, I think, 85 to 42. Now, probably if the bloke who bankrolls your organisation says, you just do it. But the Olympics, as um, Steve Simon does rightly say, uh, and people who know my new job will know the Olympics is a big part of my beat, the IOC are preparing the ground to allow Russians and Belarusians to compete as neutral athletes at Paris 2024. The reason it needs to be addressed now is that um, in a lot of Olympic sports, the qualifying cycle has already started. And in fact, um, the sports that currently have Russians and Belarusians banned will want to align themselves with the IOC by allowing those athletes to have the chance to compete, to qualify, to be at the Games as neutral athletes. Um, it's also worth noting that the UK government wrote to a load of Olympic sponsors on Saturday uh, and asked them to ask for further details of the neutral stance because I think basically the government don't think that a neutral stance is really going to be possible. They would rather athletes were banned. Um, Calvin, I wonder if there's been any, any shift on tour. I know you've always been anti-banning um, Russians and Belarusians on the grounds that they don't represent their country. Has there been a shift in feeling on tour from people you've spoken to? I don't think so, not at all now. Um, I think it's it's very much the same as it as it always has been. Um, like I've said before, it's it's a bit different because there aren't many Ukrainian male players that are at the main tours, not as many as there are in the, the females, but... Um, the Russian male players, they're, you know, they're friends with the other players. And, you know, they're, they're, or Rublev in particular has spoken up against the war. I think Medvedev and Hachinov are both friends with Rublev, so I'd be surprised if they're, they're of opposing opinions. Um, and like I say, they get on with the other players. I don't think it would get to a stage where in the men's game they'd start saying we need to ban Russian players. Again, I do find it, just find it bizarre when Svitolina, who I've got a lot of respect for, starts saying there's only tennis that's allowing them to play. It's just not true. There's, there's Russian players playing football all over the world for football mm. teams. Um, it's it, Olympic sports, you are representing your country. And I don't think that tennis players, should be, Russian and Belarusian tennis players, should be allowed to compete in the Olympics. But I don't think that you can stop them playing in tournaments where they represent themselves. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we, we've spoken about that before and I'm sure we get lots of questions about it because we always do whenever we talk about it on the podcast. But I think we've, we've probably made our views uh, pretty clear. Um, it's a story that will, of course, go on and on. And like I said, my overwhelming feeling is actually sympathy with these the women and men who've been through the absolute ringer. I feel really sorry for the Russian players as well. As you say, Calvin, I, I don't think any of them are particularly pro-war. I'm sure there are some of them who have sympathies in that direction. Uh, including some of them who've won some pretty big tournaments recently, but um, I don't think it's it's worth pointing that out. It's probably libelous to say it, so I'm not going to. Um, let's move on to some listener questions, shall we? Uh, I'm going to skip over Casper Rude, um, but I want to note that Casper Rude's form has dropped off an absolute cliff, and I await with interest to see if we get an explanation for that. 
Right, we've had an email from Matthew. Remember, you can get in touch by email, tennisunfiltered at gmail.com. He says, he's a big fan and a long-time listener. Thank you very much, Matthew. Please do keep listening. As you will all be aware, Denis Shapovalov penned a piece in the Players' Tribune last week. It was about equal pay on the tour and the unfairness that exists. Uh, and he referenced his girlfriend, uh, Miriam Bjorklund, a player on the WTA tour. I've been listening to the responses from the tennis bubble and they've all followed a similar line. Lots of praise for Chapeau, followed by plenty of criticism to the replies that Shapovalov re- received. This is where my issue is and I want you guys to address it. Although I understand the criticism that tennis media will have for the asinine responses, for example, well, if women want equal pay, they need to play best of five, I do take issue with legitimate questions being dismissed as just people that support Andrew Tate or the like. Um, Andrew Tate being uh, a sort of arch misogynist. Um, In order to see, and worse, in order to see a lower number of negative replies to Shapiro's article, it's important to educate people on why equal pay should follow for women when the WTA event receives less money from TV and gate receipts compared to the ATP equivalent. Simply dismissing people as bad faith actors rather than explaining why the gap shouldn't exist is never going to bring people onto your side. Uh, Looking forward to another top episode. Uh, Thanks, Matthew, for getting in touch. Um, I don't know who wants to jump in on this. I mean, my, my stance on this has always been quite straightforward, that yes, women's tennis doesn't generate... Uh, as much money uh, through TV and gate receipts as the men's game. But I don't think that matters. I think that tennis should be trying to do more than just give money to people who the market creates money for. I think it's incredibly admirable that tennis events like Indian Wells, which I'm watching at the moment, or the Grand Slams, are run as gender-equal events. Um, Certainly, if you only paid the people who generated the money in the men's game the the money that they generated and didn't pay anyone else basically three blokes would make quite a lot of money and no one else would make very much at all so i think there's a difference in equity uh and equality equality and equality uh and i think that probably equal pay creates that calvin um i would say that the what i've got to say on it is that it's it's not an opinion on this i'm i'm think that women should be paid the same as men if they're competing at the same tournaments and that kind of thing which they are at the slams and at um i think they are at indian wells this week am i right in saying that it's a great question and i'll check while you and they should if they're answer. not they should be the problem is is when dennis shapovalov is making these statements that women deserve equal pay for as men in everything it, it's ignoring the the fact that they're different entities they're different entities that pay the money so who is he complaining at is he called the, the WTA? The WTA and the ATP are two different entities, and the play, the tournaments that are run, the the people who run the women's tournaments are not the same people that run the men's tournaments at each different venue, and that so they're at different venues. So I don't know who it's actually aimed at, unless it's aimed at the tournaments where they play at the same time, in which case I think it's now pretty much that they are on equal pay. But you can't say that, for example. A two a women's two fifty deserves another deserves to get paid as the same as a men's two fifty because that means all the men's two fifties don't pay the same anyway. But the money has to come from somewhere, and if the women's tournaments the women's tournaments are, are paying what it generates, and I don't know who he thinks he's complaining at. That that's the thing. It, it's not so simple as all oh, the women should get the same as men. Men men's tournaments can have you can have three men's tournaments. Well. The, the men's tournament two weeks ago in Marseille, 
and there was there was a it was a two fifty, and there was a two fifty at the same time in Doha. The Doha tournament paid twice as much as the tournament in Marseille. The prize money for each round was almost it was almost or just over double the amounts. So, which tournament does does Denis Shapovalov think that the women should be getting equal pay from? from that week in the women's tournaments because they weren't at the same venues yeah i i kind of agree with that and uh, there's there's one kind of obvious solution in terms of uh, uh prize money but the players would absolutely hate it would be a uh, a consistent level of prize money per per rung and as calvin says that that wouldn't go down very well because ultimately you'd lose some mega bucks tournaments that are paying well over the odds in a, in a bid to attract people to places that they'd probably be less keen on. So it, it, it's a bit of a tricky, tricky issue from that perspective. Um, but I, I, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, joint events, there's absolutely no excuse. I know, I think it was Madrid certainly for a long time were, were paying behind. I, I think they've, they've changed it now. I think. Uh, India um, Wells, by the way, is equal prize money. Indian so yeah. Equal pay. Um, yeah, there's no excuse. I think if you if you've got the two, everyone playing at the same event should have the same opportunities to make the same amount of money based on what they're winning. That should be a fairly non-controversial take. But as you say, there's probably speaks to the wider point that you know, should the ATP and WTA just merge full stop and make everything joint events? You know, is that not? I've always kind of said this about tennis that. I can understand the the gaps in some perspectives. If you take everything as an individual entity as a tournament, if if that's not making as much money, then they can't justify from a business perspective paying people. You know, and that's not to get John Isner and Riley Apelka on my case because you know the tournaments are squirreling away cash in their in their view or whatever. But um, surely, kind of merging the tours closer, having this united front makes tennis i've always i think it just makes tennis a stronger proposition in the market you know you will attract more female fans i imagine by having female players out there because they see people who are, are like them and want to emulate them that that's one of the things tennis can do better than other sports is because it's so close and yet so far from equality it it captures all sorts of societal interests that other sports simply can't because those um, sports don't have the players on an even keel. They're not as big superstars. Um, and I, I think tennis gets a bit of a hard time sometimes, I have to say, you know, compared to other sports. You know, it's 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 certainly a million miles away, but people are absolutely right at the same time to, to strive to make it better. It, it's just hard to do that, I think, technically, unless you really merge the two things pretty close together, which has obviously been mooted and posited for a long time, but not yet happened. Um, we'll see if it does. Uh, yeah, and yeah, I mean, I, I think that is the point, really, is that the only way you could fully even up prize money would be if you did, in fact, merge the tours, because then you just have one pot of money coming in and one pot of money going out, rather than, as Calvin points out, like individual tournaments functioning separately. So, um, yeah, it, I don't know what the PTPA would have to say about um, that idea. I would be intrigued. Uh, speaking of the PTPA, we've had a question from Chris Gunner about them. He says, Ahmed Nassar, CEO of PTPA, has outlined a series of requirements they wish to see implemented. 
World-class pensions. All players able to travel in reasonable standard. These are just two of the many aspirations. What do you think Ahmed is seeing that the rest of us can't? Um, I, I'm not quite sure what Chris means by this, but I suspect he means where is the money for this coming from, George? Yeah, I suspect so. I mean, world-class pensions is something really to aspire to. I'm not sure there's many of those kicking around at the minute. Without golf, golf has an, <laughs> golf has an amazing pension scheme. Like really? the the PGA uh, pension scheme I was reading about the other day is absolutely amazing, um, and a percentage of your prize money gets paid into it. And once you've in golf, something happens after two rounds, which is they make a cut, which is actually in some tournaments they don't but anyway half the field goes home so the idea is once you've made 75 cuts in your career you then are fully paid in to the pension pot so the equivalent might be in tennis once you've made 75 tour quarterfinals then you're fully paid into the pension pot and it's kind of that's like paying your national insurance in the uk or paying into your pension so yeah i mean that's what a world-class pension looks like it's really good that's that's better than most uh I, I yeah. was more alluding to not necessarily sporting ones and more kind of private industry as a whole. You know, it's kind of. A... It is worth saying that the ATP do have a pretty good pension scheme, as it's. Do they? Yeah. Okay. And it's the That's... different tiers. Um, it's kind of different tiers from. You know, if you get to a certain ranking, it goes up a level, and that that's what what the players and you have to be being within a certain ranking for so many weeks and that kind of thing. But I don't know what the exact numbers are, but I know the players all speak pretty favourably about it. Um, I mean the PTPA thing was just a lot of it was just pie in the sky stuff Uh, all players able to travel in a reasonable standard I thought (laughs) I mean this came out basically this came out on a document that that just before we recorded a podcast uh, which was all their sort of big aims and yeah all players able to travel in a reasonable standard yeah I completely agree I think all players should be able to travel in a reasonable standard but like I don't know how you're going to are they going to collectively bargain like global flights deals with 25 different airlines so that they can book cheap last-minute tickets for players. I mean, Calvin, you, you know better than any of us that travel is expensive for players and difficult, but have you got any solutions for me? No, it's it's pie-in-the-sky stuff. Like, players will... It's like you said, they'd have to negotiate with every airline because that's what the majority of players do unless you're making a fortune, unless you're in the top 20 in the world. You're just trying to find the cheapest flight. You're not just going to one airline and then going, right, we'll take them. And even if it's 30% off, it could still be more expensive than one of the other airlines. Mm. It, it's just, it, 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 it's again, this is what I find bizarre about this PTPA thing, that it's all based on, it seems all based around the very best players in the world and, 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 how, and how they're going to get more money out of the game. And anything mm. that's based lower, they throw these things in, but doesn't seem very well thought out at all. No. Yeah, agreed. Um, let's move on. Uh, Chris Thornton says, Rafa back in Monte Carlo, question mark. Uh, does he have a chance at Roland Garros? Love the pod. Keep up the great work. Um, I'm currently trying to book a trip to Madrid because I'm hoping that Rafa might turn up there. Um, I mean, I think, I don't know what you guys think, you may disagree. I think if he plays one clay court tournament and wins a couple of matches, that will be enough for him to turn up at Roland Garros and be... Maybe not favourite, but in the top two. Uh, yeah, yeah, maybe top three at the minute. You know, we'll see, see how it develops. With yeah, I, I, I still wouldn't be surprised to see 
him win it. I'm probably in favour of Djokovic slightly at the moment, but I've gone in the last few years favouring Djokovic and he's, he's not won it. So um, maybe I'm just over-egging Djokovic's ability. But I, I don't know if Nadal's just luring us into this trap again, but I, I, I'm more concerned for him now than I've ever been before in terms of making it. And I, I think he... I've said this times time again, and you guys have, don't necessarily agree, but he, he got away with murder Zverev's ankle going last year. I'm certain Zverev was winning that match, honestly. Um, that was a, a real twist of fate for him to win it last year, in my humble opinion. Um, but I, 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 I think the way Novak's playing, the way Alcaraz is threatening to play, and Nadal's ongoing fitness issues which just feel more severe now than ever before yeah he's still top three but i'm struggling struggling to see it but my mind will be changed when he just turns up and wins monte carlo no doubt <laughs> calvin do you, do you feel similarly uh i don't think you can ever write him out i don't i wouldn't make him the favorite but i don't think you could ever write him out he's in the top three or four favorites what if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Very good. Uh, let's move on to... Oh, Dr. Tim Mason, because we, we talked about this question off-air and we were all very excited about it. In your opinions, who are the top three British players of all time? Uh, I'm going to go to... Well, who wants to go first? Fastest finger for... George is ready. I can see him Murray. Is that Murray. Fred Perry and Virginia Wade. I've decided to do three top ones. All right. I've got... But I've got... I mean, I can't pick Fred Perry. Like, I, I, it's just like, he didn't <laughs> play the, the same... No, but he didn't play the same sport. Like, it, I just... I don't... Okay, we're going to go open era then. Should we do open era? Top well, three. if you want, but I just... I, if you want to pick Fred Perry, pick Fred Perry. It's your... I was going to say, my, my answer was going to be, I think you've got to put Fred Perry kind of separate because I don't know where he sits in the same echelon, but his numbers and his... His career in itself was phenomenal. I don't think you can ignore it, but I don't know how you compare it with, with the others. I mean, in terms of the the male players, um, Murray's the number one by an absolute mile. You're then probably looking at Henman. Uh, Canada's own. Yeah, it's probably Rosetsky, isn't it? He's re- a regular in the top ten in the world. They got a Grand Slam final. I mean, yeah. I, I, I would probably say, I, you know what, I think, and I've been thinking about this for most of the podcast. I would probably <laughs> put Emma Raducanu in quite close to that top three. Murray, obviously, I think you can have not... women separate. Women separate. I think you know, it's you then got like. Oh, I'm going to be ambitious. We're I'm trying to try. merge the tours, Calvin. We're yeah, come on, Calvin. Yeah, you can't compare them. You know, get like... with the program. And also. She... It's hard to judge Emma because the way you know the randomness of the way that she won that mm. title. You know, you can't. Have somebody, you... You're basically having a player in your top three of all time based entirely on a two-week period. Yeah, that's true. 
Yeah. Virginia Wade's that... nailed on as Murray on the other side, isn't she? I mean, there's yeah. no... Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go... They're, they're two of the three, I think. Are we putting Sue Barker in there? 1976 yeah, if you want to slam, yeah. yeah. Yeah, if you're just going to do the women, Barker, Wade, I, I think her slam. I think her slam's arguably more questionable than Raducanu's, to be honest, like in terms <laughs> of the players who didn't play. Not to, you know, belittle Sue Barker's achievement, but that was a very interesting time on the... Uh, the WTA tour. She lost the trophy, didn't she? Yeah, and no one really knew it happened. And I don't, she seemed. And not she was Australian really... on the trophy as well. Remember? Yeah, um... it's a, a truly bizarre Grand Slam. Um, yeah. Right, we've got one more question, which is a shame because I really want to segue through Sue Barker. We can't. Uh, Elena Sudi, regular questioner, says, "What are your thoughts on players appearing to tournaments while semi-impaired, inspired by Steph's shoulder injury?" Does it make sense in order to test what level one is at? Does it depend on the time slot in the calendar? Is it mostly sponsor trigger triggered? Uh, last minute question. Apologies, um, Calvin. Maybe your best place to field this. Like, are there times when players will turn up with a little injury, thinking, "Well, I'd probably lose first round, but it would be good to get an idea of where I am." I don't think they'd ever think that. I think what you find players will do is that they'll convince themselves that it's better than it is because they really want to play. Right. And then come come the start of the match, they they realise it's it's not. But then there's the other side that it's it's just a niggle, and you got to play with niggles. Tennis players are always playing with niggles. I don't think Pass was injured the other day. You don't play. I, I watched most of that match. He was really letting go on the serve, and he was letting go on a couple of big forearms. He lost it at the end because he hit two forearms too hard. Um, I think you know it was just it was just a little niggle that he got on his shoulder. I don't think it was an injury. It, the exception to the rule of this, of course, used to be the Grand Slams before they put the rule in about the first round prize money where people would definitely turn up <laughs> with close to broken legs, knowing yeah. that would basically fund their whole year. Um, so that's a slightly different dynamic. But yeah, I don't think Sissipas would be necessarily thinking like that here. Yeah. Uh, right, we'll move on. Uh, let's talk about Andre Agassi. Because, Calvin, people really enjoy you talking about Andre Agassi. Probably not as much as you enjoy talking about Andre Agassi, <laughs> but it, it's not far off. Um, can you tell us the story of how you became an Andre Agassi fan, or how you became a tennis fan, in fact? Uh, no, yeah. so basically, um, when I was, I don't know what year I would have been, I guess maybe 14, and I was quite into tennis, you know, I played tennis. But yeah, wasn't overly asked about it or anything. Probably preferred football at the time. Um, and there was a girl who I fancied at school. And um, can you I remember just, her name? Uh, I can, but I'm not going to say it. <laughs> <laughs> she still lives around the corner. <laughs> yeah. um, or some 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 people I know might know her. So I'm definitely not letting that one go. But um, <laughs> but yeah, she had a uh, she had a she had a no at school. We used to have these at the school where I went to. We used to have the desks and the desks like opened up um yeah. so you had your stuff in it and uh, i remember once like, i was chatting to her and she opened up a desk and inside the desk she had a picture on the the underside of the desk there were two pictures there was one of andre agassi and the other one was of edward furlong who was the actor who'd just been in terminator 2 judgment day which was a huge film and they were obviously like and a two good guys film. excellent film two guys who she, she, she fancied and i was like right there's no way that I can be fighting cyborgs from the future. So that one's out. 
but I might be able to be good at tennis. <laughs> so, 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 so that's what got me more interested in tennis. End up getting me nowhere with a girl, to be fair. But you know. did you did you similarly start rocking the uh, jean shorts and? Yeah, I had them all. I had them all. Yeah. <laughs> did you have a similar hairdo then? No, I had long hair. Taking the hair. same hair no, transition. I did have I did have longer hair when I was playing tennis when I was younger. I did used to wear a bandana, not 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 Agassi length, but I had I had longer hair. Um, it's amazing how much you and Agassi have got in common in that sense. I, I wish, yeah. <laughs> but the thing is, this is the weird thing now, though, because Agassi, he looks a little bit weird now, like when you see him, but he was a phenomenally good-looking lad when he mm. was in his, um, you know, early 20s, I suppose. But, like... It's weird, because some people age into baldness. i tell you yeah. who I look... So, uh, UK listeners will remember Gladiators off of the 90s, and may remember Hunter, the sort of blonde one, yeah, yeah. Um, he's called James Crossley, and actually, when I look back at him, he had a terrible hairline. He had long hair, kind of down to his sort of bottom of his ears, but he had a proper like triangular yeah, hairline, yeah. Yeah. and it looked awful. He is now bald and looks amazing. Like, and yeah. he is—he's twenty-five years older, and he looks so much better. But um, yeah, James Crossley, if you look him up. Yeah, this is the weird thing with Agassi, though, because like you've really—if you're gonna do the 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 full bold, the shavedness—and I know a little bit about this because I am—I always think <laughs> you've got to do some facial hair because otherwise, <laughs> yeah. you just, otherwise you just end up looking like a thumb. <laughs> and, then, and, then it's, and it's like, and, and Agassi kind of does, you know yeah. what I mean? Which is weird because like when he first shaved his head, when it was—I'd said to George last week—it was the Australian Open '95 when he he unveiled that the hair had all gone. Um, and he'd shaved it. He had like the pirate's goatee, so he had mm. the the facial hair for a while. But um, but yeah, he he looks a little strange now. But yeah, that that was basically started my sort of uh, fandom of Andre Agassi and really perked my interest in tennis. Uh, I tell you, who... who'd have thought that Edward Furlong would have featured on the tennis uh, <laughs> unfiltered podcast? Well, exactly. And speaking, and of Edward Furlong, about... by the way, Edward Furlong, by the way, does not look great now. Because no, Calvin, I am literally looking at pictures of Edward Furlong now. Oh my and word! I think he's. I. I mean, I'm actually not going to take the piss because I suspect he's had some bad times. Yeah. Um, yeah. He doesn't. He doesn't look well. Uh, right. I've got a couple of other things. Uh, one of which is also going to involve a Calvin monologue. I suspect uh, Riley Apelka has been talking this week. Uh, which I think we're all delighted about. He said, get rid of doubles. Only time people watch it are when it's singles players or the Bryan brothers. Uh, Bob Bryan's just been made US Davis Cup captain, by the way, as an aside. Uh, Calvin, I, I assume you're fairly much in agreement with that. Uh, no, not at all. Rubbish, uh, as is everything that comes out of um, Riley Pelka's mouth, um, <laughs> I think. I mean, it's just not based in any reality. It's not the only piece. As I said to a couple of people yesterday, I was out in Delray with the lads who I coached a couple of weeks ago. And um, uh, the stands, we were on the second court. They only had two match courts. The second court seated probably about 300 people. And for one match, it was full. The other match, it was almost full. And all due respect, I don't think they'd come to watch Dennis Cuddler, um, <laughs> who was the only singles player on the court. People, you know, as you pointed out, James, people who watch doubles are people who just really love watching tennis. Mm. Um, and I, I do think that's the case. And also... When we're talking about money, you need to fill the courts at tournaments, and and yeah. after the first two days, when the singles most most singles tournaments are sixteen player draws, uh, sorry thirty two player draws, so that's only sixteen matches. So mm. by the second day, you're only down to eight matches, 
right? Yeah. You've got to fill those courts with something to get people in to watch tennis that actually pay to come into the arena, pay to come into the, the grounds. As you yeah. see at Wimbledon, it, it's not, you know, at Wimbledon, you can have no singles players any. The lads played at Wimbledon this year, there were probably 400 people around the court and they played two other doubles players. Belshaw versus Betton. That would get the fans in, I reckon. Well, yeah. <laughs> two singles players, though. Two singles players, though. Uh, yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more, really. Like, it, it, it fatally misunderstands the economics of tennis. Um, if Riley Apelka wants to, like, lose first round and then hang around for the rest of the week and play exhibitions uh, to fill the court because he thinks that there shouldn't be any doubles, then he's more than welcome to. But I suspect he wouldn't like that very much either. So um, I think he needs to wind his neck in, but... I think that most of the time. Um, uh, announced this week that Claire Balding is going to uh, replace Sue Barker as the host of BBC's Wimbledon coverage. Isha Guha is going to start in the mornings uh, and then Balders will take over in the afternoon and the evening. She obviously has been working on the tennis for the BBC since 1995, one way or another, incredibly, uh, and has presented today at Wimbledon the highlight show, which I actually think is going to get binned this year. Uh, anyway, because it never happens because of night tennis. Uh, George, pretty much as we expected, isn't it? The BBC, much maligned as it is when it comes to tennis, they don't like to make changes too drastic. Yeah, can't say it was a a whopping great surprise. Um, look, I mean, Claire, Claire's a very experienced broadcaster, isn't she? I think people kind of underestimate how difficult a job it actually is. That kind of, you know, it's not so easy to to shove an ex-pro in that role. People, you know, you might look at Lineker, but Lineker's probably the exception that really proves the rule in terms of a really slick former athlete doing that job. Typically, they are just, you know, broadcasters, broadcasters. by trade um, who've, who've trained the whole careers for it. So I, I think from that perspective, it it makes sense to go with someone experienced. Um, yeah, I, I don't really have much else to add, I, I personally am not overly bothered by who's presenting the coverage. I'm more bothered by who's actually commentating on the damn thing. That really annoys me mm-hmm. more. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I don't really mind too much either way. Calvin, I, I, I mean, I know you wouldn't say a bad word about balding in my uh, presence, but um, <laughs> y- you would have liked to see someone else. I'd, yeah, I think I'd think she's a bit posh and a bit, you know, a bit old hat. I'd like to have seen somebody like who just isn't posh and a little bit younger doing it, I I don't really see the point in going to Claire Bolden, if I'm honest. It's not like she's even got a, a solid tennis record uh, of, you know, of anything like that. But I don't think you necessarily have to, but I just find it a bit of an odd one. Yeah. Mm. I, I can confirm her record on the tour would be very poor if she played. I've seen her play before. It was not not the prettiest sight. So, yeah, she wouldn't, she wouldn't be uh, challenging to be world number one. Well, I won't hear a word against her because I met her at Eastbourne this year and she was really nice. Uh, so I won't hear a sing. Also, she's really into walking, and I also quite like walking because I'm boring. So um, I won't hear a word against it. Well, uh, as we speak, Emma Adekanu is just taking to the court against Beatrice Haddad Meyer. She is one love up on serve uh, on a packed court with all the usual people in her box uh, watching on. I think that's all we've got time for. We, I mean, I say got time for. We've gone on. A long time this evening, and I hope that it's been <laughs> yeah. worth it. Um, but uh, George, have you got any other other business? I think I, the only thing that we've we've probably not hit, James, is just a, another promotional thing that we're going to be doing a bit bit more podcasting over the next couple of weeks. 
Yes, uh, well, hopefully. Uh, I, the dotted line has yet to be signed, George, so I'm reticent, oh. to, I'm reticent to actually uh, announce our sponsor, but we are in talks uh, with a sponsor for Miami, which will mean that we get to do a couple of extra podcasts during the tournament. Um, more on it to come, but it'll it's quite a cool thing. It, it's an exciting product. It's something that George and I have been talking about for a while, and I think it'll be really interesting if we get the chance to talk about it. But I'm not going to talk about it until there are two signatures on the contract. Um, but yes. Uh, oh, Calvin, actually... Something you mentioned earlier and I wanted to very briefly talk about is Henry and Jules are playing a challenger in Phoenix with the most stacked entry list of all time, right? Yeah, it's a strange tournament, actually. This week, these two weeks are actually bizarre because it's the same. Uh, it's one of the uh, best way to describe it. It's one of the new level of challenges that the ATP have put on, which is 175. And I think there's only three of them in the year, three or four, maybe. Um right. And it's meant to be a gap between for the guys that can't quite get in the 250s, uh, but uh, they're not really getting any ranking points from the 100s, uh, even if they win them. That's the initial plan. But the problem you've got with this one in Phoenix is that everybody who loses first round in the Masters in Indian Wells heads off to Phoenix because there's two mm. weeks to go before Miami starts. Right. So you have this strange situation, particularly in the, the doubles across these weeks, is where... I don't know whether people have seen how many singles players have been playing doubles in Indian Wells or have entered doubles in Indian Wells and then pulled mm. out at various stages. I think Cough, there's Cough, been Cam Yeah, I think there's I think there's been four pairs who've pulled out. Um and it's what I always say that the, we talk about, you know, idiots like Riley Appel could talk about singles players playing more doubles, but they you get this situation where they sign in if they win a round of singles, they don't want to be in the doubles, and if they're out of the singles, they don't want to be in the doubles. So there's no point them really being there. So you've got that situation where none of the doubles players or some of the doubles players can't get in the Masters in Indian Wells because it's full of singles players who eventually pull out. But also the same week, because it's not classed as being the same week, you can't enter two tournaments in the same week in tennis. Because it's not classed as being the same week, because Indian Wells in theory started last week, a lot of the top doubles players can enter the Phoenix Challenger, which they have done. But they've entered that knowing full well that they're probably, or there's a good chance, they will still be in Indian Wells. So the doubles draw, so Henry and Jules, who are 60 in the world, they weren't even near the draw. They've actually ended up getting in because, as expected, I think nine of the pair, there's only 10 direct entries, and I think seven of them pulled out um, because they're still in Indian Wells. And so you have this absolute chaos over two weeks. It's so easy to... To settle on i don't know why the atp don't say if, if you, you can't enter indian you can't enter phoenix if you're in indian wells you can if you're out of indian Wells, there's always two sign-in spots up for grabs um on on the day if you're out you can go and take your chances and sign in but you can't enter it while you're still in another tournament it makes no sense and presumably there is prize money for losing round one in Indian Wells, right? In fact, yeah, I, yeah. I know there is. Yeah, there's yeah, yeah, 15, absolutely, yeah. 15,000 pounds. So it's yeah. not like by saying if you enter Indian Wells, you can't enter Phoenix, you're doing anyone out of cash because no. f 15 grand is probably... Uh, what's the top prize in Phoenix? I don't know. I mean, it'll be more than that, but... Yeah, um, just off what a 250. Well, I'll tell you right now, actually. Um, if you wait one minute, it is first. Uh, what first round prize money or winning? Uh, winning prize money in Phoenix. It's for thirty example. grand. Thirty grand. 
Yeah, so the, f- the first round prize money in Indian Wells is £15,000. So no one is going to... If you say you can't enter Phoenix because you're in Indian Wells, no one's going to be like, oh, I'll just sack off Indian Wells then and play a different yeah. challenger. And, you know, it's not... It's not. It, it makes no sense to me that in no other week of the year can you enter... They won't let you enter two tournaments that are going on at the same time. But because mm. of this weird one that starts on a Friday... Yeah. Like you can enter the same one, and then so what you've got in the situation is what the problem with this is for Henry and Julian is they they've ended up getting in, but they could have flown they would have had to fly to Phoenix not knowing whether they're in or not. They would just have to sign in. It's an expensive and, and, punt. That, yeah, and it? it's 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 it is an expensive punt. And then if they don't get in, there's then nothing for them to play until maybe hopefully getting in Miami, which they probably won't. So you're coming over to America for no no reason, and also. Let, let's be straight up. If if we're saying that these tournaments are for the players who are somewhere between challenges and two fifties, the top seed in fi- the person like Matteo Berrettini has entered Phoenix. The top seeds in the doubles are uh, Joe Salisbury and Rajiv Ram. These are the top players in the world, and they're entering mm-hmm. just because they're out of another tournament, and that's where you cut off the food chain if you do things like that. Uh, I see they're on the entry list for Miami, but pretty pretty slim chances. Yeah, um, I think yeah, it's the the masters are tough to get in. Yeah. Well, uh, yet more problems we can solve on tennis unfiltered. If anyone ever asks for our opinion, but I'm not going to hold my breath. Uh, thank you very much for listening. As always, we really appreciate it. It's why we're able to do more. Hopefully, podcasting as time goes on. Um, do leave us ratings, reviews, tell your friends, find us on Twitter, Instagram, but most importantly, do come back. Podcast Network.